This episode is sponsored by National Treasures Artists in Residence. National Treasures funds artist participation in artists in residence programs during their twilight years. They also forge mentorships so that expertise honed over years will be passed along one-on-one to a younger generation of artists and memorialized in a digital library. Visit nationaltreasuresair.org. On this episode, we have Violet Lang. Violet grew up in the Midwest, an avid reader and lover of the sciences. She earned an engineering degree during her undergrad years and made a determination before graduating that she would attend business school. She worked for General Mills for five years and then attended Harvard Business School. She worked briefly in consulting before joining a nonprofit called Right to Play. After an injury from running a marathon brought her closer to yoga, she explored the operators in the space and eventually joined YogaWorks, initially running their retail operation and then heading up programming. She left to launch her own business coaching and consulting firm called Executive Sutra, expanding it now to assist her clients in creating healthy, lasting love in their lives. Violet, thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you, Asim. I'm really grateful to be here. It's uh, such a treat to have you as a guest. I was uh, thrilled when we were able to arrange this. I've always been in awe of how you've led your life and the theme that I've often felt uh, that comes through resoundingly clear is how you are very much in the service of others. And uh, as we talk through all the amazing accomplishments that you have achieved, um, I think that's gonna come through and our audience is going to be exceptionally inspired as I have always been uh, hearing about uh, your accomplishments and your feats. So uh, I love to start out at the very beginning. Um, Tell us about growing up in the Midwest. I think there were some really beautiful things, very simple place in many ways to grow up. I grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska, and we didn't lock our door pretty much ever. Mm. We, you know, walked to school, even when I was in Uh, first grade, you know, six years old, walked to and from school by myself, like it was just a different time and also a different place. And I think that provided in some ways, some innocence, which was really nice and and helpful, especially considering there are some other things going on. But I really love interacting with people of different life experiences and new ideas. I'm, I'm the happiest when I'm talking with someone just like you about what's possible or a new idea or a nuance in something that I thought I understood, but I don't yet understand fully. And I, I got a lot of stimulation from my school. School was my happy place, but I don't think it was enough. So I'm, I'm grateful for those beginnings, but I'm also very happy in Los Angeles. Yeah, no, I can completely understand that. Um, how did you combat the boredom? Were you an avid reader? Yes, I think the reason I started having to wear glasses when I was in third grade is because my parents would find me as I was going to bed without a light on because they would know if they saw the light that I was still up. But I would just either be reading without any light, like right by the window, trying to catch the last glimpses of light while I was reading, or sometimes with a flashlight. But I was I was commonly trying to read with very little light and my eyes took the the burden of that. Um, Yes, I loved reading. I loved studying. I loved book, uh, the book club at the library where you get the little Mm. stickers for reading the books. And um, later on in high school, I was in math league and I just loved anything that was the pursuit of something more meaningful, something greater knowledge. 
Nice. That's great. Um, did you have a chance to really uh, kind of expose yourself to other ways of thinking, other cultures, other uh, modes uh, during that time? I imagine it was a little hard. It was. I mean, it's interesting because there's so much going on in the world right now, obviously for good reason, about racial inequality and injustice. And in my elementary school, it was very homogenous. And when I went to middle school, there was more diversity. And I remember riding the bus, because at that point I couldn't walk to school anymore, and just talking with people on the bus, both schoolmates, but also this was a public bus, not just a, this was like a city bus. Mm. So I remember talking with different people and that was one of the first memories I have of, wow, like my mind really being opened. And then in, I think late middle school or early high school, I don't remember the exact timing, my mom, who is also a school, who is a school teacher, had a child who was a Hmong population or Vietnamese population, and mm. and they had a birthday party, and so we went over, and we had different soups and different. Um, I would, I, they're not, they're like you know spring rolls, but fried spring rolls, and it was just really cool to see and be around a different language, mm. different culture, different food. Oh, that's so great. Um, you're obviously very open to it, which is wonderful. Um, imagine uh, your proclivities and acumen in math and science that also led to being in math club were a key reason you chose engineering in, in college. Um, and so tell us about that choice, because as an avid reader, and I know what a tremendous speaker you are and a writer, you could have done literature or any number of uh, courses of study. Tell us about uh, the choice of engineering. Looking back, it's an interesting choice because had I to do it all over again, I wouldn't have chosen engineering, mm. but I appreciate having that technical background. When I was, I believe a sophomore or a junior in high school, there was the opportunity to shadow someone at work and we got to choose our own adventure. We got to reach out to a professional. And my dad has his PhD in forestry or um, water resource management. And my mom is also a teacher, but she teaches elementary school. And I had heard very strongly growing up, science, 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 you're gonna get your PhD someday. Um, get a technical degree, you can never go wrong with a technical degree. So even though I really loved my AP literature or my AP language classes and um, when I was really young in elementary school, I did some, some plays and some drama and a little bit in middle school too. And I played the piano for 14 or not 14 years till I was 14 from five to 14. Mm -hmm. So I had all these diverse interests, but, um, for that particular day, I remember I shadowed someone who was a mechanical engineer and he had turned mechanical engineering into architecture. And so he took me to some of the really big buildings. I think the tallest building in downtown in Minneapolis, he had wow. been the main project manager on. And to be honest, I remember thinking, this doesn't sound that, like it's cool, but this doesn't sound that great. Um, but when I went to apply to colleges, my advisor and my counselor also said, you know, apply to engineering, you have to say what you're gonna major in. Like you might as well say that, they'll probably be more interested in accepting you into the into the program and i didn't really know what engineering meant so i just went with that and i did really love chemistry and i did really love science but i wouldn't say in hindsight that i loved it more than these other things yeah. um, 
Math League is a whole other story. I had so much fun with one of my friends, <laughs> Bianca, who is in Math League with me. And to be honest, I don't think I was that great at Math League. I think that I have some natural smarts, but it's mainly like work ethic. And it's also mainly connection with other people. Like the process of talking with someone else builds those light bulbs and those neural sure. pathways in my brain versus just being super super book smart yeah. um but i i digress so i didn't realize until i was a sophomore in college four years later you know i don't actually like engineering and so i went to my counselor at college and they talked to me but they were said you know just if you're if you're doing well in it just keep going it's not that you can't do it you just aren't loving it so I kept going, but they, I also convinced them to let me do a, a slightly non-traditional path. So I still graduated in four years, but I got two minors. I got a minor in entrepreneurial studies and a minor in Spanish. And my parents consistently in college were also like, just keep going, get a technical degree because I had the good fortune of getting a full ride for undergrad and no one wanted me to go any longer than four, <laughs> four years if I didn't have to. Um, <laughs> And that was part of the reason I chose engineering too, is because the school that offered me full scholarship was Iowa State University, go Cyclones. And that was, that was wonderful. I'm so glad that I got my college totally paid for, including room and board um, all four years. Had I gone to other schools that I got accepted into like Northwestern or Yale or Duke, I may have gone into a different direction, but Iowa State isn't necessarily known for its business school or isn't known for other other schools it's a very technical school so getting a technical degree from a technical school just it kind of made sense but there is i the romantic side of me is like oh i could have gone to duke or yale and majored in english and you know done all these other things but that's okay i think i ended up exactly where i needed to be see that's what is uh what i really love is that uh, we have these choices we make these decisions um but then at the end of it, when we can say, I ended up exactly where I needed to be, that's, that's perfect. There's, there's really nothing better than that. Um, so you started a career um, with a very large um, uh, corporation. And um, I think because you are a polymath, you covered both operations and marketing. There was probably no job scope that you couldn't have filled. Uh, but share with us about that experience. Um, you know, you spent about close to five years there. Yes. I've been reflecting a lot on this lately because I just turned 40 uh, a few days ago, actually. And I've been thinking about what were my 30s to me? What were my 20s to me? Uh, didn't really dive into the teen years. I think I've <laughs> lived enough of those, not have to repeat thinking about them. But the first five years of my, of my life experience after undergrad were really formative and very, very important in how I saw myself and how I saw the world. And I started working for General Mills, the food company in operations in engineering um, as, I forget the name of it, but it's an operations management program, development program. And they rotate you through different positions every six months to a year. And it's designed to be two to three years long. And so within that scope, I got to work in, including my internship, three different of their manufacturing factories and very different functions. So the first function was in line engineering, looking for system efficiencies, increasing productivity, uh, making sure that our downtime is as low as possible and that our um, 
startup phase especially that we start up well so that we're not wasting product or having to stop and start again and that was a very you know engineering focus piece and then i did operations where i was in another factory where i was managing 80 different union employees which was really interesting as a 20 21 and then 22 year old um or no sorry 22 then 23 year old and that was a great experience. I had a fantastic boss and it was super challenging to gain their respect, to understand all the technical details of the, of the manufacturing line. Um, but it was, yeah, it was awesome. It, it really helped me with my leadership skills. And then for a while, I also did logistics at a different factory that just, which is now closed, but it was a flour mill in Vallejo, California, also in the Bay. And that was all distribution. I realized I did not like that very quickly. It's just too many like little tiny moving pieces and not enough vision and not enough strategy. And then I moved to their headquarters and I was an operations business manager where I was responsible for between contract manufacturing and then in-house manufacturing. There was seven different facilities and that was amazing to be able to travel. I was traveling twice a month to different facilities and checking in on things, talking about new marketing projects and new products. And we had to increase our capacity because sales had gone up by something like 40%. We found a, not we, the marketing person found a marketing campaign that really worked well. And so our demand increased very quickly and then we didn't have the capacity. So I was kind of well, hunt, hunting for other places that could make it. And the manufacturer, yeah. Yeah, it was really exciting. And then, and then I switched into marketing before I went to business school. And that was fun too. And so I feel like within five years, I got a very um, broad view of consumer goods and um, people, really a lot of people learning of, on the operations and on the marketing side. Yeah, for sure. Um, you talked about how you had done entrepreneurial studies in college. So at what point did you decide that you were going to go get an MBA? I decided that before I even graduated undergrad. Okay. So I'm, I'm someone who kind of follows my heart in the moment. And when something feels right, I just do it. But I'm also very strategic. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when I was an undergrad and the school and my counselors and my parents and kind of everyone around me was saying, just get a technical degree, don't spend more time doing something else. And by the way, this isn't the school to do something else at anyway. I said, well, okay, fine. But then I'm going to get an MBA. So I started researching MBA schools, I think a junior in college, undergrad. And I realized if I'm gonna get my MBA, I'm gonna go exactly where I want to go because I went to Iowa State mainly because I got the full ride there and financially it just made, made the most sense. Um, so I decided that when I was a junior and then I realized that I wanted to get a lot of good work experience and that most top MBA schools are not going to take someone straight out of undergrad anyway. So I decided to get some real life work experience, which turned from two years into five years, but I was learning so much along the way and I was studying for my GMAT and I was very precise in all of these things. Um, so that's, that's how I kind of always knew. And then I was focused on going to somewhere that I really felt good about. That's great. Well, fantastic. Um, which ended up being Harvard Business School. And then um, you uh, had a summer at BCG. Where did you, were you thinking you'd just give consulting a try, see if that, how that felt? Well, the interesting piece is that 
in my in my mind, which maybe at the time was clinging to security. When I entered business school, I thought, this is great. I'm going to get my MBA. I'm going to go back to General Mills and I'm going to become, you know, a, a division vice president or president. And I'm just going to work in marketing, not just it's a, it's a great opportunity, but I had thought I was going back. And I realized once I got to business school and my mind and heart and soul blossomed and I realized how much was out there beyond my limited view. I was like, Oh, I can't go back. <laughs> so I called them because my, my, employer, you know, General Mills had paid for my schooling for my MBA. So I called them, I think it was maybe March. I don't remember exactly when it was, but after I had interviewed for internships and I got, um, I'll toot my own horn a little bit. I got an, I got an offer, an intern offer at all three top management consulting firms in New York City, which no one else in my class did and was kind of unheard of. So I had worked really hard to get the case interview to be in a place where I really um, loved it and understood it. And to be truthful, maybe it wasn't even an interview. Maybe they were just like, oh my God, a woman with five years of engineering and operations experience, we want her. And we're gonna tell her she's gonna do marketing and then later we're gonna put her on all these, you know, turnaround cases, <laughs> who knows? Um, so once I had those offers, I called my person in HR at General Mills and I said, yeah, I'm not coming back. And she goes, well, you realize you then owe us $150,000. And I was like, yep, I do, it's okay. <laughs> so. I turned that down and I went to the financial aid office literally right after that phone call and said, here's my situation. They're like, it's okay, we can help you. So we, we figured it out. Um, I was drawn to consulting because intellectually and theoretically, it's awesome. Like thinking of high level ideas and big problems that companies are facing of doing research and finding um, the right solutions but what I thought consulting was and what it actually was in my experience were very different. And I realized the type of consulting I was interested in was very partner level consulting <laughs> and not to sound like a diva, but I, I didn't want to put in the 10 years of time in order to finally get a chance to have a seat at the table and working on these big, big ideas. So it's almost like I went from a very ground floor working literally in a factory on like one particular line, analyzing their, their throughput to working on a big case with um, Tommy Hilfiger brands and other brands that were considering, they were considering spinning off their fragrance and accessory business. They were considering selling some of their, um, some of their brand assets basically. So I, I took a very high level approach in that, although the work that I was doing was pretty, you know, minimal because I was just an intern. And then I realized that actually I just wanted to be closer to the heart of real impact, whether that was in a small business or a nonprofit. And so I did not renew my, my offer with BCG because my heart wasn't in it. Nice. Well, that's been a common theme of uh, your work, uh, which I, again, commend and find really extraordinary because um, coming out of business school, you worked at a nonprofit. Yes, which was kind of an interesting choice. I similarly remember calling the BCG HR person in the fall of 2008 when Lehman Brothers was crashing and everything was happening. And telling them, you know, I'm not going to come back full time at BCG. They're like, what? <laughs> this is the this is the worst economic time for an MBA graduate in decades. And 
you're going to turn down an offer at a New York City firm that's, you know, paying quite well. And um, I said yes. And I didn't know what I was going to do in the time, but I just felt like I needed to let them know so that they could recruit and fill my space and not let them know last minute. And also what prompted that, which maybe sounds a little bit strange, is they have a like a cell weekend where they invite all their interns out and everyone does this. This is not anything against BCG. But I remember thinking, well, who's paying for that weekend? If I go out and do that and I'm not sure that I want to work for them, I was like, well, okay, well, the company. But like, who's really paying for that? Well, their clients. Okay, so other big companies. And who's paying for that? Well, the shareholders and the consumer, like it's all trickling down. And so maybe it's my German upbringing, <laughs> my heritage. <laughs> it's like, this is not efficient. <laughs> but I just was like, this doesn't make any sense to have some, you know, family paying more for their products they're buying at Target so that we can be schmoozed to work for this company that none of us really want to work for, but they're just paying us a lot so we can hopefully eventually make partner and then find more meaning in the work. And not everyone feels that way. I'm, I'm kind of knocking management consulting, but I just, I couldn't, I couldn't stay for the long, for the long play. So I interviewed for a leadership fellows, which is a program through Harvard where they match HBS grads with a nonprofit doing strategic work. And I was grateful that I got my, my top choice, which was Right to Play, which is a nonprofit based in Toronto, Canada, but that works in 23, at that time, 23 countries, teaching children about things like hygiene and brushing your teeth and malaria, but through games, like through beanbags and through songs and through all these other things. So uh, just share with us the thinking, um, because um, consulting, your heart wasn't in it, but uh, then was had there been this sort of theme of uh working at a nonprofit uh, throughout and that that you just gave it more um prominence or, or share with us my my thought was that if i can take the skills i'm learning in business school and apply them to nonprofit that could be perhaps a great asset or a great benefit um sure. i had always done volunteering work when I was young um, in high school doing big brothers, big sisters type things and after school programs. And that continued through my twenties in various um, shapes and forms and um, all different sorts of volunteer stuff. I won't, I won't say like I'm the queen of volunteering, obviously I'm, I'm not there. I wouldn't classify myself that way, but I did always have a, a desire to do something meaningful and I think I thought what I thought was meaningful has shifted, which I think it should as we as we learn, as we grow, as we get older, what gives us value and what we think provides value changes. So at first I was like, oh, I'm helping make granola bars that are better than candy bars and healthier for you. But but then it shifted to, you know, oh, I'm helping companies really provide incredible products and services. And then that shifted to helping a nonprofit um, with their strategy, their fundraising, their, I didn't do much with operations with them, which was actually a pleasant break. Um, and just talking to about their, their marketing, like their branding and their, their going to market with getting people to stay interested and passionate in their cause. And part of it too, is that in the leadership program, leadership fellows program, I think there was maybe 20 nonprofits and right to play spoke to me the most. I think also because both of my parents are educators, this idea of like play education 
and one thing I just also want to add, I know I'm talking a lot, is that on in my business school, I did a lot of travel. Like I traveled all over the place. I thought if I'm going to take out this massive student loan and I may not have this time in my life again, or this, you know, money, this loan money, <laughs> I'm going to make the most of it. So I had gone to, with other classmates, you know, I had gone to Tanzania and Kenya and Cambodia and had been in places where I just got to really see um, that life economically at least was was very different. So it also opened my eyes to maybe wanting to make a broader impact than I had thought of earlier. Oh, that's phenomenal. These locations you visited while you were working for Right to Play or in business school? These were things I, places I went in business school with Amazing. other business school students. I did also take a class in business school called business at the base of the pyramid. And it's the idea that you can serve a broad amount of people, um, much smaller margins, but doing more impactful work and empowering local businesses. And we um, took a trip to Mexico and we looked at business, everything from small weaving cooperatives where women are weaving and making their own rugs in their home in Oaxaca to larger uh, enterprises in Mexico. And that was an interesting view. That was before the right to play thing happened. So there was a few other things happening there. Gotcha. But I can see how that kind of um, uh, laid the groundwork or uh, sort of wet your desire to, to do something um, global in footprint, um, but uh, highly impactful. Um, which is phenomenal. So share with us then, uh, Violet, about the transition from Right to Play to Yoga Works. <laughs> I feel like I have career ADD or something. I don't know if all your guests are like this, but... Uh, <laughs> no, the beauty of it is, I mean, our tagline is mining the nonlinear path. And so yeah. it's, uh, I wouldn't describe it as you just did. I would say that it's all a quest. It's a search. <laughs> to bring you where you are today, which was necessary. That's true. So thank you for the, for the reframe. <laughs> I, I was at Right to Play and I had realized that my presumption was flawed. My presumption, I'm just gonna go in and, and bring these business tools to nonprofit and be of great service. And nonprofit is its own special thing. It's, it's nonprofit for a reason, you know? It, you, it doesn't always apply one for one. Yes, there's some efficiencies that can be gained and there's some important things to, to consider, but it's, it's its own unique thing and I think it needs to be treated as such and, and understood as such. And I also realized that in order to stay in that organization or any significant nonprofit organization, I would need to choose between significant fundraising work or significant operations work. And I actually didn't feel an integrity to do the operations work because I felt it was maybe a little bit white savory to like, I'm going to go be boots on the ground in Africa and, you know, help them. Like, it just didn't feel right. And so I didn't want to do the operations track, even though I love travel and I think it would have been an amazing life experience. And then I realized that fundraising just wasn't, wasn't my passion. Um, I think it's important and I, would love to get back into that at some point if I have more influence and affluence later in my life, but I realized that wasn't where I wanted to put my, my specialty. And then there were other things I learned about leadership, just working from a small founder led organization that um, rubbed me the wrong way. 
So I was looking for something, whether I stayed in Toronto or whether I moved somewhere else, because my year-long fellowship was coming to a close. And I had been in discussions with someone in Toronto who worked at a private equity firm in turnaround management. And they really liked my, my experiences and my um, operations background. And intellectually, I was really curious about that too. But I checked in with myself and thought, is this another example of management consulting where it sounds conceptually cool, but the day-to-day -day work you're maybe not gonna enjoy. And I felt like that was probably true. So I was still in conversations with them, but I never really like accepted an offer. And along the same lines, I was looking for other opportunities mainly back in the entrepreneurial space. I wanted to be closer to the ground, closer to the impact and have an important seat at the table. Maybe that's my ego, but I wanted to feel like I was in the discussions, making the decisions and, and moving, the, moving the needle. Well, you're highly capable. So that was the best use of your talent. Wow, well, thank you. Um, I, yeah. I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> so, um, so I was talking with, uh, there was a chocolate company, a boutique chocolate company, kind of a bean to bean to bar, um, bean to nib chocolate company in New York that made me an, an offer to be their COO. And there was just something about it that I couldn't say yes to. I think because they were so small, I was, I think I would have been their third employee yeah. as COO. I would have also been responsible for a lot of, you know, technical things like their website. And I didn't, I realized I had gone far enough into like marketing and management consulting and the business school stuff. I didn't actually want to go back into too much technology. So that was my hang up with that one. So I was in this place where I had talked to a lot of different companies, kind of like Goldilocks, nothing really felt like the right fit. I didn't know that, it didn't feel like I had anything on my own that I wanted to build a company around, although like six months later, I had a few ideas and, and anyway. Um, so then it was very, I will say divine intervention. I feel like my whole life is full of divine intervention. And I had hurt my leg. I was running training for a marathon in oh, wow. Toronto and hurt my leg. And then I had to just do yoga and I had not been a huge yogi before. I'd been doing some yoga and meditation since I was 25. And this time I was 29, um, hurt my leg, had to do a bunch of yoga, was traveling to New York for right to play because I have an office there and fundraising there. Went to Yoga Works um, because that was the only thing I could do and I had to, felt like I had to move my body. And then I realized while I was at Yoga Works at some point, oh, this is a really cool company. They have a bunch of different locations. So I searched, uh, I went to their website, I searched, I couldn't really find anything. I talked to someone at the front desk. They were like, I don't know, we just have like studios. I don't really wanna like work behind the desk at a studio. And then I don't think it was until a month or six weeks later when I only had a month left in my fellowship and I was like, what the hell am I gonna do? And something compelled me to look on the HBS alumni directory. And I searched yoga works as two separate words. I can't remember how, how I did it. Basically their search, their search function kind of sucks because I searched for two different words, nothing came up. And then I searched together like a week later again, I don't know what inspired me, but I was like, I'm gonna search again. And it turns out that the COO at Yoga Works was an HBS grad from the year before me. So I reached out to them and just said, hey, I'm just doing an informational interview. I didn't wanna to seem too thirsty. <laughs> I just wanna learn more about your career experience. That was kind of my tactic. 
And um, we had a great conversation at the end. He said, well, are you looking for a job? And I said, well, truthfully, yeah, I would, I would love to see if there's an opportunity here. And he kind of made me an offer right on the spot and said, come out, you know, come out and see us and we'll talk. And, and then the rest is, the rest is history for that part of it. <laughs> Amazing. So that brought you out to Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. and um, you started out on the retail side. Yes. Running their retail uh, program, but then uh, moved into uh, programming and content uh, from there. Mm -hmm. um, I, I know that you also, um, you got a yoga teacher certification yourself, and you also became a, a Reiki master. Mm -hmm. Did that all happen around the same time? No, it was interesting. I worked for Yoga Works for five years, just like I worked for General Mills for five years. And both of those experiences were absolutely foundational for who I am and what, what I learned in my skills as a leader and, and thinker. I came to Yoga Works knowing that I loved yoga. I'd fallen in love with yoga um, through that experience of having to do just yoga many times a week and also really loved the company and what they stood for. And when I was leaving Toronto, my yoga teacher in Toronto, who before I hurt myself, I was only seeing like once a week. And then I started going more often. Him and I built a relationship. He gave me a book, um, Asana Mudra Bandha Pranayama. It's a, it's a yellow book. And he wrote in the cover, you should become a teacher. And I was surprised. I didn't even, I think I, think I looked at it like when I was literally in transit to California and I was like oh okay so he put a little spark in my in my 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 psyche about becoming a teacher and it spoke to me because when I was growing up I always thought I'm gonna be a teacher maybe because my mom was a teacher but that was like my aspiration it wasn't to be an astronaut or an engineer or it was a teacher and honestly a bakery owner I like would make <laughs> make, make my jiffy cake my jiffy cakes wow. in the jiffy bake oven and, uh, and so there was like this baker teacher sort of energy. So to make a long story short, when I got out to Yoga Works, I realized, yeah, I, I might as well take their training. And so I, I took their teacher training. And then the Reiki piece, I was walking my dog and I passed a car that said Sacred Ventures. And it had a little, mag you know, those car magnets that people used to have before they wrapped cars. So it was a little magnet with like the picture of a beach. But in my brain, I thought sacred ventures, I was thinking of entrepreneurial ventures. I wasn't thinking of like adventures, but I go to their website and I realize it's Reiki, never heard of Reiki before. I had no idea what it was, but I thought, you know, there's a reason that I saw that because when I was walking my dog and saw that sticker or that magnet on the car, I looked up and the woman was actually sitting in the car and we made eye contact and I just felt something and she became my Reiki teacher. So I didn't realize at the time that I was building these tools in my toolkit, yoga teaching, Reiki master. I also got my coaching certification because at one point yoga works was thinking of partnering with a coaching company, coach training Alliance. And we were going to be one of their marketing arms. Like, Oh, you got your yoga teacher training. Now come get your coaching certification. Cause they really do go hand in hand. It's all about transformation, physically, spiritually, emotionally, otherwise. So I had acquired all of these skills at Yoga Works, and I was not thinking at the time that I'm going to go off and start my own thing, but then it kind of happened that way. Combined with the fact that, as you mentioned, originally I was working in retail for Yoga Works, managing all the retail boutiques within there. I think at one point we had close to 40 locations, 
And then I moved into uh, their educational wing, which was so fun because I got to manage all the teacher trainers and the educational workshops and retreats. And that was probably the most rewarding of jobs that I've had other than working for myself. Nice. Oh, that's so great that it was a positive experience. But you felt the pull, the entrepreneurial draw uh, to work for yourself. And uh, in 2014, you launched uh, Executive Sutra. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Yeah, I had been working on this idea of bringing meditation and yoga and visualizations and all of these different tools to the corporate world because I had seen not so much in yoga works but definitely in BCG and in General Mills and even in the nonprofit I worked for this weird pattern of we're really stressed out and instead of fixing it it's going to become a badge of honor like how stressed can I be like that makes me more valuable if I'm more stressed and when in reality it probably makes an an individual leader less valuable to the organization the more stressed that they are so i i thought oh there's something there and i had noticed how for myself becoming a yoga teacher and i also took some meditation trainings and doing all of these things i believe made me a better manager it positioned me to to move into the educational space in yoga works but i it also along with that i was leading 16 people on that team and I felt like I became a better leader. Now you might want to ask those people to see if that's true, but it felt like my leadership style and skills and insight and intuition and all of those things seemed to have, have gotten better. And we were growing, we were, we were doing well. Um, and we were also doing some new, new things. Like we had a partnership with Urban Zen, which was Rodney E's company about bringing yoga into hospitals. So I'd kind of seen some new, new ideas and I also had an idea for a book where I was going to write a book for every chakra and each chakra would have different meditations and yoga postures and pranayama that could help with that particular aspect of, of leadership. I only wrote two of those books because then my career took another direction, but um, that's where executive sutra came from. And so many people were like, don't use the word sutra. It sounds like Kama Sutra. It's horrible. But I mean, sutra is really just a nugget, a, a koan, like a, a thread to follow to deeper wisdom and and I think executives needed needed yeah. that myself included. Kind of a course of study. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So tell us about the um, career turn that you just alluded to. So I realized when I was doing business coaching that again it was good, but it wasn't quite at the heart of the matter. And I was working a lot with people in sales, ironically. Um, because I think sales is actually a skill set. Uh, a lot of them were sales leaders and managers and directors where they needed to perform, they wanted their team to perform, and being less stressed really helps because people can tell when you have sales breath or when you're super stressed out or when you're not, not seeing the bigger picture, or you're not able to close a deal or, or something like that. Um, but ironically, a lot of my clients, we worked on a six-month contract. Within a few months, they would say, you know, my business is doing really well now because of your help, like, and obviously because of the things they were doing too, not just all me. Can we talk about my personal life? So almost all of my clients would shift to the personal life. 
I don't think they realized that in parallel, I was doing major overhaul on my own personal life and my own experiences from childhood sexual trauma and divorce and dating narcissists and having a hard time in my love life. And, and so they must have energetically picked up on that. So I wasn't super comfortable with it. I was definitely letting them know this is out of scope, but if you're up for it, I'm up for it for a few mm -hmm. sessions. And so it seems like the universe was guiding me towards helping with people with their love life. But I was in massive resistance for a few years because I thought, oh, that's not credible. I can't go to Harvard and become a love coach. Like, ew. <laughs> I mean, I was never someone who watched The Bachelor or, you know, I hated the dating apps. Like this was not something yeah. that I was thinking that I was going to go into. Right. But a lot of the people that I started coaching in their personal life also, you know, had good results and I, I loved it. And and at one point then, I think in 2015, I decided to take a program on coaching that was specifically about love, dating, and sexuality. It wasn't about dating, love, relationships, and sexuality. In addition to the coaching training I had taken earlier, which was more just kind of basic coaching. Right. Well, and this is what uh, occupies the bulk of your time now professionally. Yes, I, I completely let go of all my Reiki clients and my yoga teaching uh, I think maybe four years, four years ago now, three or four years ago, because the love coaching just really took off. And it not only, you know, financially and, and client base wise took off, but in my life, it just, everything paled, paled in comparison. I was like, this is what I meant to be doing. Yeah. The rewards that you get from it are so significant. You haven't had that anywhere else. Mm-hmm. That was the biggest sign to uh, to dive into it, and it's been going exceptionally well. Um, and so it's it's great to hear. And um, you also have a, a podcast uh, yourself called The Pleasure Path, which I think is a phenomenal name. Uh, that you've been operating for close to to two years. I see there's over a hundred episodes there with some phenomenal topics that uh, that you're discussing. Um, Share with us, Violet, who is an ideal client for you? Hmm. There are a few, a few different um, types of clients that I work with. I will be clear, I only work with women. Um, that's, that's my focus. I think psychographically, my ideal client is someone who has felt like, I'm great at all these other parts of my life. Why can't I figure out love? what is going on here? Because I, I do run into a lot of women that similar to me have strong professional backgrounds and are smart in many ways, but can't really figure out how to make a great relationship last. Um, maybe they're overly empathetic and attract people who take advantage of that. Or maybe like me, they had childhood sexual trauma or difficulties in their, in their upbringing, um, in their family environment, I should say. Or maybe they've just been a bit of a workaholic and been a bit avoidant and scared to get into a relationship. But typically it's people who've had a, I'd say a challenge with their patterns of attraction, not attracting the right partner. And then beyond that, not knowing how to create and sustain a healthy relationship because it's never been a skill set for them to set healthy boundaries or to speak their truth or to be vulnerable or to embody their feminine energy or to embrace their sexuality. A lot of my clients are either hyper or hyposexual, and um, that relates, of course, to the sexual trauma piece. But a lot of my clients are probably late 30s all the way up to 60s. They're in a phase in their life where they've realized 
you know, I've had one, two, maybe three relationships, maybe even one or two marriages. And I can't keep, I can't keep doing this. This is wreaking too much havoc on myself and my life and my profession and my children and all of that. Oh, that's phenomenal. That's great. Um, what does the future look like for you? Are you going to continue to build your practice? Do you think you might uh, add uh, people to it or do you think we'll just keep it uh, to you? would love to hear about how you, uh, about how that all looks for you. I'm in a pivot point right now, which I think a lot of people are with coronavirus and everything happening. It's at least for me asking some deeper questions of myself. I'm not pivoting away from my mission. My mission is to end the suffering of, of sexual abuse and loneliness and to create healthy relationships, which create healthy families, which create a healthy society. I think we're waking up to the time of these small units, you know, family units or small businesses, like really creating massive systemic change, but kind of from the, the bottom up um, and, or the inside out, I guess you could say. So I'm not changing my mission, but I am thinking differently about how I'm going about it. Last year, when I was pregnant with my daughter, we had a great year. We did almost a half million dollars in revenue. And I had um, another coach who was working for me doing all of the one-on-one -on -one coaching, except for a few VIP clients. And I had a sales team and a marketing person. And you know, I was building my, my enterprise. That's great. And then I realized that like, with my daughter coming and with just the what it means to run a business like that I actually didn't want to be running like a huge business when she was when she was here and I can see now why that was the case because I really fought against that for a while I thought why am I like kind of downsizing my business right now I have a team they could be running it this doesn't make any sense and my ego didn't really want to let go of having having this thriving business that was growing because we went from yeah zero to 500 and in like two and a half years or something so congrats on that but but i had this ego and identity attached to it anyway um there were some external challenges some internal you know change of heart i let go of all all of my team except one person a few months before my daughter was born um and started doing some lower touch offerings and then when my daughter was born, we found out that she is deaf and she was born with a genetic condition that requires um, therapy and cochlear implants and a lot of testing and a lot of doctor's appointments and, a, and a, you know, a surgery that happened a few weeks ago. So now I realize why the universe or source is guiding, was guiding me to downsize things because there's no way in hell I would have had the bandwidth to manage a team, listen to sales calls, service my clients, do all the things that needed to be done and also be there for my daughter. So I, I pretty much stopped working um, other than a few hours a week from late, late November until just a few months ago. Wow. And now I'm thinking, do, how do I want to rebuild? Do I want to rebuild the exact same way? Um, and there's some different business model things that I'm doing, but I'm also writing a book on sexuality for new moms because I feel passionately about moms not feeling like they need to dissociate from their sexuality. I think not all, some of our societal dysfunction when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to relationships is because, and I'm not blaming, but women get disconnected from their bodies. They think, uh, sex, you know what? I'll have sex 20 years from now and my kids are grown or, you know, I'll connect with my husband or my partner later or, um, 
you know, maybe our old stuff comes up and we don't have, we haven't worked through it or we don't have the skills to work through it. And there's also just this massive societal myth, like Madonna or whore, like you can't be a mother and also be sexy. And I say, screw that. I mean, that's not true. So, I mean, I found that my intimacy actually got better after baby. And so I want that to be the truth for, for everyone. So I'm, I'm experimenting with a few different things, writing the book and um, I've been offering some new programs that are more specifically on sexuality, not just on finding your partner and getting married, going from single, you know, to engaged. So I'm having a lot of fun experimenting. I think this is a good time to experiment since things are shifting rapidly in our society and our economy. Oh, absolutely. Well, kudos for having the strength to listen to what you were, were sensing in terms of scaling your business down to have that uh, bandwidth to uh, to be there for your daughter in uh, a crucial time. Um, I'm sorry you had to go through that. It sounds like um, you have a solution in place and um, she's going to thrive, uh, which is uh, phenomenal. And that's kudos to your parenting chops uh, there as well. Um, and, and I agree, this is an interesting time to, to pivot. Um, our sense of alienation and isolation, I think, has only increased um, because of this pandemic. Um, this, uh, this type of interaction virtually um, helps, but um, it's no replacement for the, the in-person uh, interaction um, that I think we're all craving uh, tremendously. And so, um, you know, I love the, these new facets that you're thinking of adopting into your business. And it, it also, it's very clear, it comes from a very authentic place because it's born of your personal experience. And so you can very um, thoughtfully comment and guide, um, which I have no doubt you will, uh, many people in, in helping them through this, uh, this period. Um, Violet, this has been such an amazing conversation. I'm, I'm just very grateful for this conversation. And I want to go back and listen to, you know, your other, some of your other episodes, because I'm very present to how our personal experiences shape our professional experiences and vice versa. And I know that you've been on amazing journeys within yourself as a parent. And, and I'm just thinking about the intersection of parenting and the career choices that we make. It certainly has uh, dramatically changed and altered the course of, of my life. And I've talked about this on a few different occasions, but um, now that you are a parent, it's very, I can easily say this and you would relate to it. And I mean that you'll easily relate to it. Um, there's no higher mission than, than being a parent. I've had, a lot of lofty titles in my life, partner, managing partner, chairman of the board, the best, absolutely best title has been dad. And something just, um, you know, when uh, my son was diagnosed with this rare blood disease, this was actually the clearest decision I ever made in my life. Deliberated on everything prior to that. Do I go to this university? Do I go in this profession? Do I marry this woman? all of it, decision, 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 matrices, pros, cons. Um, this was just so clear. I dropped everything I was doing uh, just to focus on him. And it was the best decision I ever made. Um, he's thriving now, he's cured. He's, you know, we had to go through two bone marrow transplants to get him there, but uh, um, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And I wouldn't have uh, done it any other way. 
it's interesting because I've also been reflecting back on that and I thought about how I had just raised a fund and I had spent 18 months of my life raising the fund, which nearly did me in um, because it was, uh, I think when we tallied it, it was something like six, 700 meetings. And um, you don't go through that effort without a plan of having multiple funds. You don't, you think, you know, you're just not, you're not ra just raising for the first one, you're raising for, for several. And um, when I look back at the timeline, uh, you know, I was 28 at the time, I'm, I'm 43 now, but by 45, I was supposed to be on like fund seven and have billions of dollars under management. But then life happens. And, um, you know, I, I didn't even uh, fully commit uh, the first fund I had raised. I, it was a $125 million fund. Um, I'd put uh, barely 25% of that to, to work at three portfolio companies, was able to quickly sell two and shut down the third. And um, there was zero hesitation on my part that that was absolutely the right thing to do. So at times when you shared in your life that you've had these callings, I mean, it's, uh, it's going, I know the audience is going to feel it to, to call General Mills and say, yeah, you know, I'm not coming back to you. And I know this means I owe you 150K and I'm all right with that. That courage is, is phenomenal, but there are points in our lives when we have just that clarity and it just makes so much sense. We can't uh, not follow that. And, and the only time I really felt that when it came was vis-a-vis -vis my son. So parenting is uh, it's a glorious experience. It, uh, it can be thankless at times, but uh, <laughs> it's also uh, the most rewarding experience one will ever have. And I wish that for everybody. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I've had many times in this journey with my daughter and I thought of you and, and what you went through with your son and thought, you know, it seemed went through that and he was strong and capable and, um, you know, insightful with his business. Like I can do this too. So you were definitely a source of inspiration. That is so thrilling to hear. Uh, I'm really touched by that. Thank you. Um, Again, Violet, what an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for your candor, your honesty. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for following your heart in the way you have and the, just the presence you are with the lives you touch, um, the clients you have and will have. Um, however you choose to pivot, I know it's going to impact a tremendous number of people and uh, they will all be fortunate for uh, the changes you adopt. Thank you so much, Asim. Thank you for letting me be a guest on your show. Absolutely. So great to have you.